The book of Job is just filled with head-shaking ideas. It's been surprisingly hopeful, hasn't it? And certainly helpful. Today, as we come into what we are calling Act Two of this moral play based on the life of Job, we introduce some new characters, and we're calling it Friends for Better and for Worse. Now, how many of you think of yourself as a pretty loyal and faithful friend? Okay, so both of you, I, I, want, <laughs> I want you to become my friend. How many of you have experienced friends showing up in difficult times and they've been a great help to you? All right, now, how many of you would prefer some friends didn't show up? That they were more harm than good. Well, all that is captured in the story we're going to look at over the next four weeks of Job's friends. They start out strong, and then it goes downhill. Today we're going to look at the introduction to these three friends. We are in Job chapter 2. We're going to just read the last verses of that chapter, beginning at verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now in the weeks to come, we're gonna take huge chunks of this book in one session at a time, but we have been taking our time through this opening section. And so today, those are the only verses we're gonna cover. And in them, we're gonna look at how Job's friends initially were helpful and therefore how friends can help. And then we'll take a little look about what's coming down the road and we'll look at how friends hurt. A quick point of reference here, Galatians chapter six, verse two. Let's say this together. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Not only do we need relationship, not only are we drawn to care for each other, but in fact, as Christians, there's an obligation that we carry each other's burdens. But what does he mean when he says, in carrying each other's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ? What is the law of Christ? All right, that's the greatest and the second, but then he adds a third. He called it a new commandment. And what was that commandment? Love one another. So you have this great trifecta that Christ offers us. He says, love the Lord your God, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor, and then love one another. Everything we do as a church is rooted in one of those three priorities, by the way. Worship, community, and generosity. And so, yes, we're fulfilling the law of Christ in terms of our loving one another when we carry each other's burdens. And I want to point out three ways that Job's friends got it right and therefore help us understand how friends help. First way that friends help is that they show up. They show up. They, they come by planned arrangement from three different regions. We can assume that they knew Job through business and trade. And they went out of their way to show up 
and care for Job, which meant that their intent was good. They weren't fair weather friends. They weren't just business associates. They cared about him, even though at this point he had nothing to offer them. That's true friendship. True friendship is able to set aside my own schedule, my own priorities, is able to care for people even when they have nothing else to give back to us. That's agape o love. That's the love that Christ is speaking of. You know, the, there are various forms of love in the Greek language. And of course, we just happen to apply the one word to all of them, you know. I love my wife, I love God, I love the patriots, I love apple pie. The Greeks got it right when they talked about different levels. And, and one of the more um, noble levels is phileo love. The city of Philadelphia is named after that. And of course, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. It's a give and take. I, I love you and you love me. We're a happy family. <laughs> it's a give and take love. It's symbiotic. But even phileo love fails when one side of the relationship has nothing to give. And often we find out who our Christian friends are when phileo love is not an option. There are people who just don't show up anymore. And they find all sorts of excuses, but the truth is it's no longer beneficial to them to be engaged with you. That's why the Christian idea of love, akapeo, is unconditional. It means I love you, and it doesn't matter if you have nothing to give back. That's the love God demonstrated towards us. We had nothing to give him. We had nothing of worth to meet him even part way. And so he completely humbles himself, being found in human form as Christ and then being obedient to even death on the cross. He just gave and he gave and he gave because we had nothing to give back. Just showing up has power, just being there for people. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. A person comes to your mind right now, a couple maybe or a family, who you found out what real friendship was because they showed up in your time of hurting when others that you thought might have haven't. How many of you are thinking of somebody like that? Yeah, that fulfills the law of Christ. Real friends show up. The second thing that they do is they step up. Look at what it says. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him, and they began to weep aloud they tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. What do they do? They enter into and share Job's grief. They don't stand on the outside. They walk right into the brokenness just to sit there with them. They, they expressed mourning in the same way Job had expressed his grief. There's empathy there. One of the most important things that friends can do is to enter into a person's heartache. That's what it means to carry one another's burdens. You know, we cannot deal with heartache on our own. We will wither away. And most often our faith will go to a point of crisis. We need people who will, in entering into our hurt, bring some validation to the fact that we're hurt. But not only is it okay that this has wounded you, I understand why. 
And I'm going to sit with you in the ruins. I love that. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how Job was sitting in the ruins waiting on God. And in this way, God was not completely silent. He showed up through three friends who said, I love you and I care. So real friends show up without any expectation, unconditionally. They step up. They enter into the pain, and in doing that, they share it with you. There's that passage we're gonna look at at the end from Romans that says, part of this law of Christ is that we rejoice with those who rejoice, but we mourn with those who mourn. One way to paraphrase that is that Christian community doubles the joys and halves the hurts. Because we take on that hurt. You don't have to bear it by yourself. I will bear it with you. And when you have lost the ability to carry it, I will carry it for you. So powerful and such a blessing when we receive it. Friends show up, they step up, and then they shut up. (laughs) This is actually when Job's friends peak. It says for seven days and seven nights, they just, I mean, that's a long time. Most of us couldn't go seven minutes without trying to say something. And, and what we need to learn, and, and I'm gonna say this because I've experienced it, and I know some of you would say a big amen to this, our presence is usually far more powerful than our words. Just being there with somebody, picking up the slack when they're just unable to get up and worry about certain things and just know, well, I'll just go do that. Not not with fanfare, not managing their lives, not stepping in and taking over like control people want to do, but just being a presence. And when things come up, just making sure that they don't have to worry about it. We're just there with them. Boy, that is so powerful. It's more powerful than our words. And we will prove that definitively in the next few weeks once these three well-meaning friends open their mouths. (laughs) Let's just talk a little bit then about when friends hurt instead of help. And I mean this by way of a preview because we're going to really get into the content of the debate that ensues, which is really the bulk of the the book of Job by by just sharing some thoughts with you. This is a progression of ideas that that lead us to the conclusion that sometimes friends hurt more than they help. The first thing I want to point out is that friends tend to be good at giving short-term comfort, but not long-term. Even as churches, you know, our care ministries, we're really good for about a week, maybe two weeks if we have enough people to make meals. It's the person that's living in a long-term need that just isn't going to go away, and there's no easy fix for it, that churches are bad at. And you know why churches are bad at it? Because churches are people, and people are bad at it. We're not very good at being present in a person's life for good for long-term. We want to solve it. We get impatient. And one of the reasons I think that's true is because seeing our friends suffer often threatens our own belief systems about God, about life, and about people. We are definitely going to see that in these three friends. They agree to show up and comfort him, 
but eventually they can't help themselves. They've got to fix it. Especially once Job begins to articulate his anguish, which we'll look at next week. That just opens up so many threats to their belief system, to their view about life and about God and about justice. And when we see somebody that our prayer hasn't solved their situation for, and then when we're with them long enough, their humanity's gonna show up and we're, we're gonna see things in them that are far less than perfect. And then we'll begin to think, well, maybe this is their problem. And ultimately, we just can't help but opening our mouths. And that leads us to the third thing I want to say. Eventually, we try to fix things. And sometimes it's out of love. But let's admit this, and this is hard. It's often out of impatience or even, and write this down, insecurity. We talk a lot about emotional well-being here at the church because we believe that God transforms us not just in our head and in our spirit, but in our heart. That's part of, and there's lots of basis in scripture for it. Many people go through life emotionally blind. And what I mean by that is that they have no capacity to turn a mirror on their own heart and look at their reactions and admit that they're probably the weakest link in all of their relationships. It's always somebody else. And if that's how you've gone through life, that you're just the victim, all your relationships have broken up because of what other people have done, then you are an emotionally stunted person and you are not whole. And it's affecting your belief system as well as your relationships. And you like to believe that everything you do has only the best of intentions. In fact, you may have said that over and over again when things go wrong. I only had the best of intentions. And you know what? That's one of the biggest lies that a person can ever say because none of us are ever driven by a single intention. We don't ever, as broken human beings, do something only for good. Now, that sounds very pessimistic, doesn't it? The doctrine is called total depravity. Look it up. That's why we needed the cross. That's why the gospel. You see, all of us are broken people. And when you come into Christ, we are being conformed into the image of Christ, but that job is not finished until we're in God's presence. And there will always be a struggle in your heart to work in ways that are for yourself. And so part of that transformation is to always be aware of the hidden agendas and hidden intentions that the brokenness in us brings into every circumstance. And in this case, what we're going to see is that the friends of Job say, hey, we've got the best of intentions, but unfortunately, other intentions that they're probably not even aware of begin to dominate their interaction with Job. And that's true of all of us. It's that old iceberg illustration. You know, there's the, there's the part we see above the surface, even in our own life, that we say, that's what drives me. But then there's everything under the surface, in our subconscious, in our emotions, that is driving us and shaping what we're saying. And what will happen in this setting because of that is that Job's friends will move from comforting him to counseling him, to confronting him. Those hidden 
intentions take over. They will actually become mean and angry. And as a result, Job's friends will bring more hurt than they will help. I want to just share two examples of this. Last week, Jenna shared in the services about her experience of going overseas and facing some serious physical issues that the doctors were not figuring out. One of the things she didn't share in detail, but she gave me permission today to share with you, is that those doctors came to believe because they couldn't figure out what it was, and therefore because her illness didn't fit into their belief system, their view of medical truth, they began to believe that Jenna's issues were psychosomatic, that it was stress-related. Now, she came back to the States and found out she had a very, very serious intestinal infection. But it became difficult because her friends on the trip bought that. And when she began to experience physical pain, they began to pray for peace of mind, peace of heart. Did they mean well? Did they care about her? Were they causing hurt or comfort? Hurt. Yeah. It was one of her greatest challenges because then she started thinking, can this be real? Is the problem me? Praise God, she got to a place where somebody could say to her, no, the problem's not you. You're really sick. <sighs> Something, huh? When my mom was very ill, my mom um, had a connective tissue type disease, and then she was on prednisone for almost four years straight before they learned that you can't do that to people. The result was she was in a wheelchair, and we don't really know if it was the prednisone or the disease that caused this debilitation. And uh, my dad was speaking up at a camp in New Hampshire. I was up there with my dad leading worship, and my mom had come along, but my mom couldn't handle the stairs. And so she spent most of the time up in the speaker's room, which was on the second floor. And a group said, can we pray with your, with your mom? And uh, my dad said, sure, we'd love to see mom strong. And so they came up, it was early in the week, and, and they prayed with her, prayed for God to bring healing. And as the week went on, they kept asking for updates. And by the end of the week, they were trying to get my mom to confess some hidden sin in her life because she hadn't been healed. They would rather question the character of a person than the veracity of their particular view. And when God didn't answer the way they, in their belief system, thought he would, the problem was her, not their belief system. Now, in some way or another, all of us do this. And in doing it, when we intend to help, we actually hurt. The thing I want you to recognize is that there is a very simple way to meet people in their grief. We show up, we step up. Better yet, we step into. We step into their grief. And we experience it. And we shut up. And we just let our presence be comfort. And then if and when we find that we are about to speak into it, we should be humble, 
we should recognize, as Job's friends failed to recognize, that we don't actually know everything, that even our belief system about God and the way things are is an extremely limited perspective. And when people's experiences come against those assumptions, we should frankly question the assumptions before we start questioning the individual. That's what Job's friends should have done from the very beginning. They should have thought, here is a man without blame. He walks with his God. And instead, they villainize him for the sake of their assumptions. Right? We're going to wrap up with this today. Romans chapter 12. Say this with me. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of lowly circumstances. Do not be conceited. Now, this whole passage is about us being in community with one another on multiple levels, among which is rejoicing with one another when God blesses and mourning with one another, as Job's friends intended to do, but somehow got so devastatingly off course. And Paul is saying that the way we achieve real community where we're able to effectively share each other's burdens, where we're able to effectively mourn with people so that when the joy comes in the morning, we can rejoice with them too. We can be there for the party because we're there in the morning and in the weeping. The way that happens is for us to drop our pride and our assumptions and our judgmentalism and our thinking that we have the belief system that will fix this situation and instead do not be proud. Instead, be willing to come alongside people whose circumstances have brought them low, to put our conceit aside so that we with them can somehow find the hand of God. Because that's what real friends do. Father, my prayer is that we will be that. Mm. So often, Father, we mean well, but we run out of patience. We, we're inconvenienced by the urgencies of this world. And then... We see in the lives of those that are hurting things that we just desperately want to fix. And in doing so, we fail to be true comfort and to be those that weep and rejoice and carry burdens. Father, let this church be a place where we fulfill the law of Christ. Amen.